Living the Word today. So, every time we open this book, it is a fresh opportunity for God to talk to us. Let's make sure, let's make very sure that we are listening to what He wants to say to us. LivingTheWordToday.com Look, the message of the Bible does indeed prepare us for eternity, but it also prepares us for the day we are currently living. Welcome to Living the Word Today. We invite you to spend the next few minutes studying God's Word with your Bible teacher, Jesse Wagoner. Pastor Wagoner's desire for you is not only to understand God's truth, but to help you live it today. More resources can be found on our website, livingthewordtoday.com. Now it is time to open your heart and your Bible for your time in the Word. I want to share with you from the Word of God this morning as we prepare for communion. If you want to go to Luke chapter 23, you'll be in the right location. A very familiar story, one that I would imagine is not new to any of us, but uh, sometimes these sections of Scripture, because of their familiarity, uh, we, we tend to overlook them. So I want to just take you to two more unknowns, maybe not unknown as much as some of the others we've studied in our current series. But they're, they're certainly unnamed. We, they don't even merit a name mentioned in Scripture. But it involves this time of Jesus' suffering. And if you look at verse 33, Luke 23, well, you're ready to go. And when they had come to a place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. If you'll skip down to verse 39. Then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a contrast of responses to Jesus. Just those men, and I don't know which was on the left or which was on the right. I know how I imagined it in my mind. One who joined in with the mocking crowd that was there. One that joined in with the, all the hurled insults directed at Jesus. And by the way, at the beginning, and by the way, Mark and Matthew also recount this. Luke gives the most detail. But we know from those other Gospels, at the beginning of the crucifixion scene, both of these men were mocking Jesus. But somewhere along that time frame on that crucifixion day, he had a different perspective and responded a different way. Now, there's several ways we could look at this passage. There's several things that we could really use this passage for. Uh, it helps us theologically. It helps us understand some things. It helps us understand, probably first and foremost, how someone gets to heaven. And some of the things that are not involved in getting us to heaven, good as they are. Because here's the bottom line. Now, Jesus has paid it all on the cross. He, he paid for our sins through his death. But from our side, you have, there's two things that have to occur for you to go to heaven. And you don't even have to jot this down in your notes if you're a note taker. You'll remember this. Number one, you have to believe. And number two, you have to die. This man did both in a very short time frame. For us, usually it's uh, we come to Christ and then we have a period of time where we can serve and grow and change and be a witness and a testimony for him. But this man, it was all down to this very basic reality. He could do nothing. So it tells us this. 
that we are justified by faith. We are saved by faith. Faith is what connects us to Christ through this gospel message. It also proves this. This is helpful as well. That you don't have to do anything in our own strength, own efforts, whatever, to go to heaven. As you go down the list of things this guy didn't do that most of us have had the opportunity to do, it reduces it right down to this reality that you have to believe in Jesus, and when you die, you go to heaven. And this is the proof text for it. He was not baptized. He was never part of a church. He never sang in the choir, never sang on stage, never even had the opportunity to share his testimony other than what we see during these final hours on the cross. He was not, none of the religious practice, none of the spiritual practice, none of the spiritual disciplines, none of those things were part of his experience base. The only thing he could do was to believe and to die. And Jesus sums it up with this phrase in verse 43. Assuredly, by the way, that's the same Greek word that we get amen from. Sometimes it's translated truly, truly, verily, verily, assuredly, absolutely true. I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Where, there's no doubt about where he ended the day with Jesus in paradise. So works are not sufficient. And by the way, this is helpful because many of the people you and I encounter have come to believe that you are saved by doing a bunch of good works. And if we can do enough good works, it offsets our, our bad works, and then we go to heaven. Nothing could be further from the truth. This guy, one of the two, perfectly communicates that to us. It also tells us some things about heaven as much as this is a very minute very compact statement that jesus makes but when he says you'll be with me in paradise that pretty well sums up the story of any doubts that we should have if there is a place called paradise if there is a heaven jesus says we're going there we're going to get there today and you'll be with me it also tells us and i think we need to probably camp on this more than we often do in our experience in life and it's simply this that that the fact that Paradise is a wonderful place, is well and good. But it's much more about being who you're with than where you are. And you will be with me. You'll be with me. With me. Me in paradise today. And that's the significance of it. It's real. It's a place of joy. Paradise just means that, that, that a wonderful Eden-like experience, if you want to say it that way. And then it's a real place where we'll be with the Lord. So we have all of that sort of overlaying this passage and sometimes we focus on those things as well we should and by the way if you're trying to share the gospel with someone this is not a bad story to go to especially if they're hooked into this idea that I got to work and work and work and if I can get enough works God suddenly somehow impressed with me and then he'll let me into heaven and let me come to this place of paradise so it's very useful for that but I want to look at it a different way today I want to look at it from the point of view of these two men unnamed otherwise unknown, that were as close to what was going on on the cross as anyone else, and look at their reaction and look at what we can gain from this. And by the way, I'll warn you in advance, it's a remarkable story. It's a remarkable story. So we have, first of all, in 39, one of the criminals who would have hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself. Now there's different ways you could just take that phrase, if, he, you know, if you're the Christ, save us and yourself. If that were a genuine plea, that would be one thing. But the fact is, Luke sticks a word into verse 39 that tells us he didn't mean it. And it's the word blasphemed him, ridiculed him, spoke ill of him, spoke derogatorily about him. And you think about this guy. Now me, as I, as I vision looking at the cross 
for me, he's, he's on the right side and, and the other's on the left. But however you picture it, it doesn't really matter. But he looks at Jesus, he looks at himself, and the one thing he knew for sure, the one thing he knew for sure was he was not going to come off that cross alive. By the way, crucifixion was uh, a thing that the Romans used frequently, but they only would use it to the worst of the worst. It was like the, the extreme, even of capital punishment. If you were a Roman citizen, no matter what you did, you would not be crucified. You might be prisoned, you might be killed some other way, but this was reserved for non-Romans who were the worst of the worst. And it says there were criminals, sometimes they're described in scripture as thieves, there's one indication in one of the Gospels that there was murder involved in this, whatever they were involved in. And it's a little beside the point. Someday I'll come back and share this with you. But you remember there were three crosses that were prepared and they're ready on this day. Jesus was condemned by Pilate ultimately to the cross shortly before he is hustled out of the city to this place where the crucifixion took place. I would suggest to you that that center cross was not prepared for Jesus. You may try to figure out your own self who it may have been prepared for. And probably, I'll just, I'm just going to tease you a little bit, probably the two guys on left and right were part of the same gang of the guy who got away that the cross was intended for. The, the levels of irony, the levels of illustration, the levels of teaching are just, just they're, they're very deep in this passage of Scripture. But this one man who blasphemes him, uh, I think we could say it this way, he was disgruntled to the max. He was disgruntled that he was caught. He was disgruntled that he was condemned. He was, he was disgruntled that no one's going to save him. He was disgruntled that he had no hope. And he just hurls his disgruntledness, if that is a word, on Jesus. If you're the Son of God, do it. Get us out of here. Get, us, get me off the cross. Never believing that that was even in the world of possibility, less probability. So he, has, he takes all of that venom and all of that bile and all that hatred and expresses it that way. Oftentimes we're around people that are disgruntled. Sometimes we're up close and personal with people who are disgruntled. Sometimes we are the people who are disgruntled. Not satisfied, don't like it, it's bad. Now in this extreme we can probably relate more to him in some ways than the other guy because how would you feel in that situation? I don't think I can fully imagine it. I doubt you can either. But out of all of that he hurls it back to Jesus. That's kind of normal. We would expect it. We can picture it. We can, we can say, yeah, I can see how that could be. And then the story flashes to this other man. Verse 40. But the other answering rebuked him. So across Jesus, from cross to cross, he's saying to this other guy that has just been in his hatred, answering, rebuking, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? Now, I ask myself when I look at this passage, I've been doing this for a few days, I've been meditating over this. What caused, I mean, you know, God and the work of the Spirit, I know, understand. But from our point of relatability as humans, what caused him to move from ridiculing Jesus to embracing faith in Jesus? If you look at there at the text, he says, do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? It's least possible that he stopped to think about his own impending death. Maybe that was enough to wake him up. And I don't like to uh, think about impending death. I don't even like to think about death way down decades in the future. But you understand, you go to heaven by believing, and you go to heaven when you die. The second is immovable. The second reality is going to happen. 
but that it only goes to this place of paradise if we believed. And this man is now expressing his faith. Do you not even fear God, seeing you're under this same condemnation? Now, perhaps he also was moved by it grew dark for three hours while Jesus was on the cross. An inexplicable darkness. There was, no, there was no answer for it. There was no explanation for it. It just grew dark as God just enveloped this scene in darkness to draw the contrast of Jesus as we've always known him to now Jesus as being the sin bearer for all humanity. Maybe it was that. Maybe he saw that Jesus did not curse and blaspheme from the cross. We have recorded throughout this passage some of the things he said. We don't know exactly when this conversation uh, with these thieves have, have come. We see it in a chronological fashion in our Bible, but that does not always mean it's chronological in the story. That was not a very big thing to those who were writers in that, that, that culture of the day. But nonetheless, he'd seen Jesus on some hand. We probably heard him say in verse, what Jesus said in verse 34 is he's being nailed to the cross. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. We, we hear that he did not respond in kind to the taunts and the insults. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was his impending death. Maybe it was what he saw of Jesus. But here's his response. Now, he's already rebuked the other guy. But here's he makes this confession in verse 41. And we indeed justly will we receive the due reward of our deeds. That is a remarkable statement. Most people that are condemned or put in a prison or put in jail, most people are going to claim at least either some mitigating circumstance or someone else is responsible or I am innocent and you got the wrong guy, wrong girl. That's the typical response. Instead, he says, Everything we're receiving, we deserve. That's a remarkable thing to say. He took responsibility for his own flaws, his own sins, his own fractured place before God. It's a remarkable thing. But you understand that's part of this process of embracing faith in Christ. Because if we do not know that we have a need for a Savior, we are certainly not going to embrace faith in a savior. So he saw that need. He saw his own sinfulness. He says, we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. And then he says this about Jesus. This man, this man has done nothing wrong. Now probably, possibly, he's just saying he's done nothing to deserve being on the cross. But whatever he meant, whatever was in, his, in, in, the, in the back of his mind when he says this, it's the most accurate, perfect thing that anyone could ever say about Jesus. He has done nothing wrong. That puts him in a category all to himself. It puts him in a, in a, in a status different from everyone else. There's no one that's ever walked this planet that you could point at and say, he, she's done nothing wrong. In fact, the majority of what we've done has been wrong prior to coming to Christ. And coming, after coming to Christ, we still struggle with Sin, temptation, fallenness, living in a sinful world, pockmarked and, and, and formed in the, the mold of the world which leads to a sinful lifestyle. And then he says, verse 42, as remarkable as everything he said, and everything he said was remarkable. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, did he look like a Lord? 
Did he look like a king? Did he look like someone that was going to have a kingdom? There was nothing, absolutely nothing, in his vision, in, in what he'd heard, what he had witnessed, what he'd experienced. There was absolutely nothing in his experience that would have led him to believe that Jesus was going to have a, be a king, let alone have a kingdom. If he's going to have a kingdom, why is he wearing a crown of thorns on his head? If he's going to have a kingdom, why has his own people rejected him? If he's going to have a kingdom, how's he going to get off the cross? Even if, you, if he's going to get off the cross through some miraculous intervention or some rescue army coming to get him off the cross, it would have happened by now. But somehow, through his own disgruntledness, through his own faulty, limited senses, even through a mind of a man who, whose mind would have been marked with evil to lead him to this place, he puts his faith in these things, that Jesus is Lord, he is who he claimed to be, that Jesus is the king, because he says when you come into your kingdom, he believed that there was a future, and Jesus was his one and only and sure hope. That's the reason Jesus responds the way he does in verse 43. I say all that to say this, just one simple thought that I want to impart into your mind even as we partake of communion here in a minute. It is simply this. Even though we do not see him with our senses, we do not hear his voice, not one of us have had even a second's glimpse of heaven as it really is. Our imagination takes us there. The descriptions of scripture take us there, but it's imperfect and incomplete. Not one of us have heard Jesus speak with our, his own voice. We read his words in the scriptures. But you and I have this grand privilege of believing and trusting in him. That's true on the day we were saved or will be saved. That's true every single day of your life walking with him. We have a choice to make. Are we going to focus on me, focus on the injustice, focus on the, my hurts and feelings or whatever else is my bad track record? Or are we going to turn your head slightly and through eyes of faith see that Jesus is Lord? He will have a kingdom yet future, and we can work to build that kingdom as we live this life now. If I would uh, say it any other, I, the best way I know to say it, I could say it separate ways, but we should become very consciously impressed, thrilled, and empowered by the privilege, that's the word I want to use, the privilege of knowing Jesus through faith. This is a man of extreme faith, and then Jesus said to him, assuredly I say to you today, by the way, today is important, that there was no soul sleep, there was no delay, there was no purgatory, there was no nothing in between, no halfway house. He says, today, you're going to be with me in this place of paradise. It was immediate, it was coming. He adds the word assuredly, and that was the promise. If Jesus said it, it happened. If Jesus said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Because he is the Lord, and he is the king. So if we could just, as we gather around the table this morning, I want you to feel privileged. I want you to feel special, not because we're special, which we're not, but that we would gather around the cross and see the wonderful act of grace that Jesus provided for us on the cross. And that we would understand that we're saved by faith alone. And in that faith, change takes place that kicks us however long we live. This man, it was very brief 
For us, he's given us at least a few years, and maybe a few more if he's gracious to us. But you are coming to the table of the king. You are coming to remember this one who did everything that's necessary to get you to a place in this passage of which he calls paradise. Sins marked off. Sins covered. A place at the table. Jesus makes this statement in one of the passages where he's instituting the Lord's Supper with them. He says, I will no longer eat of this fruit until I, until I eat it with you in the kingdom. Even then, he's focusing on the future. And someday, someday, we'll be gathered around the throne as the children of God. Privileged because of his grace. Privileged because of his love. Privileged because of his presence. Privileged because of his words. Privileged because of his power. And he says, come. Today you'll be with me in paradise to this man. And he says to you, come to my table. And when you come to my table, there's only one thing I want you to do. Yeah, we're going to have some bread. We're going to have some juice. But there's only one thing I want you to do. And that's simply this. You remember me. You remember me. Remember that my body was broken for you. Remember that my blood was shed for you. Bask in that place of privilege, even as we partake together. Thank you for joining us for Living the Word today. We appreciate your sharing in this study of the scriptures. Also, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you will not miss a single episode. And thanks, too, for your prayers and for letting others know of this ministry as we seek to be living the Word today. We would love to have your feedback and to hear from you, and the best way to contact us is through our website, livingthewordtoday.com. Until next time, may His blessing be yours.